I hope you guys had a good uh, Christmas break, <laughs> celebrating our Savior's birth, seeing family. You know, Christmas season is one of my favorite times of year. I just think the, I mean, the whole season is full of so much meaning. And personally for me, it's like extra special because I got, actually got married in the Christmas season, so I get to celebrate my anniversary, which is a lot of fun. It's always good to see family and all those things. I hope that you were able to stay in touch well with your friends here in Chi Alpha. Maybe we got to see each other at Salt if you were there. And if not, maybe at least by like texting or calling one another. Is anyone here like a, a caller? Like you there to call people and talk on the phone? Instead of t- yeah, I know, John. I know that's you. Yeah. See, that's not me at all. Phone calls are not my favorite. I would much rather text with you. <laughs> Do you have any friends who are really bad texters? You know what I'm talking about? Like, there's those friends, obviously, who just, like, never respond, and it's just, like, leave you on red. But then there's, like, the one-word texters. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you send them a big message, and they're just like, K. Or, yeah, LOL. Right? It's kind of hard to talk to people when they won't give you anything more than that. You know, maybe some of us are the bad texters. Don't point out your friends make it awkward, but... You know, we're not always the most eloquent speakers, are we? Or typers sometimes. But maybe, have you ever had somebody send you something and it was really, really significant and meaningful to you? Uh, Maybe like a truth right when you needed it and you have like screenshotted and saved. You know, back in the day, they used to send letters before they had, you know, texting. And, uh, you know, my in-laws were dating in the 90s, and for a while they lived across the country from one another. Uh, Eli lived in California, or Eli lived in Texas, while Mary lived in California, got it backwards. And so they, what do you do in the 90s? You don't have a cell phone, so you write letters to each other, right? And so they have this stack of, like, love letters they sent one another that are still really significant to them. Maybe some of us have something like that, a letter from a parent or a loved one or even a love letter that has meaning to us. But tonight we're going to be looking at a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus. Now, Jason started us off looking at Ephesians last week, and we're going to continue looking at that. And we're going to look at the end of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Paul prays a prayer over the church of Ephesus, and he writes it down on this letter. And it is quite a prayer. <laughs> I think it was, must have been very significant for the people who received this. And it has a lot of meaning for us tonight, too. Let's take a look at it together. This is going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 15 and read down to the end of the chapter in verse 23. So if you've got your Bibles, you turn to Ephesians 1, 15. It says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray real quick. Jesus, we love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. 
Yeah, we pray that you would speak to us through it and reveal yourself to us, Lord. Help us to know you better tonight, God. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, this is quite a prayer Paul prays, right? I mean, how many of us would like someone to pray like that over us? <laughs> Especially someone like the Apostle Paul, this incredible man of God, one of the greatest men in the Bible. And to the church in Ephesus, he must have been their hero. See, not only is he maybe the greatest evangelist in the history of the church, but he's also the one who founded the church in Ephesus. He started this church on one of his missionary journeys. And we find out in Acts that God moved so powerfully while he was there in Ephesus that people were taking like handkerchiefs that he had touched and carrying them off to people who were sick and they were getting healed. The Spirit was moving so powerfully through him. And his ministry was so fruitful that it literally turned the city upside down. There was a riot in Ephesus because of how effective Paul's ministry was. See, Ephesus was the city that had been dedicated to this goddess Artemis. And they had this huge temple right outside the city dedicated to, to Artemis. It's one of the you know, seven wonders of the ancient world. And so people would come from all over the place to come see this temple, right? This is this really grand, beautiful place. And, you know, I guess they worshipped Artemis or whatever. And so one of the most thriving businesses in the city was for people who made these trinkets and these like little statues and idols of Artemis and would sell them to people who came and visited the temple. Kind of like, you know, if you think of like a thriving souvenir business in a like tourist hotspot. It was kind of like that. But then Paul is preaching so effectively and ministering so effectively that so many people are coming to hear him and getting saved, and they're not going to the temple anymore, and they're not buying these trinkets anymore. So all these people making these like idols are losing money, and they're mad because they're losing money. And so they stir up the crowd to riot, and the people famously start chanting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and it's this whole big thing, and the soldiers have to come break it up. And so this riot basically ends Paul's time in Ephesus, and he moves on from there, but he leaves a thriving church there. And he leaves a lot of people that he's discipled, um, a lot of whom we see their names mentioned in a lot of his letters. But surely he was a hero to this church. He's like their spiritual father. And he prays this incredible prayer over them, and it's full of significance. And when we read it, it kind of sounds like really beautiful, kind of lofty, almost like philosophical thing. But what does it really mean? We got to understand, Paul's not just saying things here because they sound nice. It's not like, oh, what a nice sentiment. He's actually praying spiritual realities over the church. And these spiritual realities are still realities for us tonight. And as Paul writes this, it's a prayer, but it's also an invitation. Come experience this. These spiritual truths, these spiritual realities that Jesus has for you, come experience them. And that invitation is open to us tonight here in Huntsville in 2023, just as much as it was to the Ephesians when Paul wrote this letter. And if we're in Christ, these things should be real to us, just as they were to the Ephesian believers. So let's look at this a little more closely. What are the things Paul's talking about here? What are the things he says? So the first thing is that God would give us wisdom, the spirit of wisdom. Wisdom we find personified in the Bible. It's not just like a concept, but it's personal. This is the spirit of wisdom. You kind of see this in the Old Testament, too. In Proverbs, it talks about lady wisdom. It, wisdom is, is a person. It's not just a concept. And so Paul is praying over them that God would fill them with the spirit of wisdom. He's the source of wisdom. He then prays that God would reveal himself to them so that they could really know him better. Give supernatural revelation of who he is. And then he says... 
the eyes of your hearts may be opened. What does that mean? When the eyes of our hearts, that means something deeper than our physical eyes. That we can see with our physical eyes the world around us. And we see all the brokenness and we see all the hurt and we see all the problems. But Paul is saying, I'm praying that you will have your, your spiritual eyes of your heart opened so that you can see beyond this physical reality to the hope that we have in Jesus. His kingdom, which is both here right now established in our midst and also still coming. We see this brokenness in the world around us, and that is going to end because Jesus wins in the end. And his kingdom will be fully established. But at the same time, his kingdom is here now in me and you, if we're in Jesus. And that is our hope. And we need God to open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see beyond the things around us in the world and see that reality. It also lets us see the riches of our inheritance in Jesus. Kind of like what Jason talked about last week, that we have all spiritual blessings in Christ. We are rich in Jesus, not with perishable things like money, but with spiritual blessings. And so that we could see his power, his limitless power, which is extended toward us and given to us. I mean, how do you think Paul was healing all these people? And then we see, he says, God is the one who has worked all of this in his might through Jesus in raising him from the dead and seating him in the heavenly places above every power, every name, every authority and dominion on earth. And he has all things under his feet. All of this means that he is in control. Jesus is seated in the heavenly realms above every power, every name, every authority, and he is in control. And when we look around the world around us and it seems chaotic and it seems out of control and it seems like just a mess, we know that Jesus is above all and he has the ultimate victory and his kingdom is here now and it will be here to come. And he is our head as the church. And even crazier than this, we see Paul says a few verses later in chapter 2, uh, you find this in two, chapter 2, verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So all this he's been saying about Jesus being seated in the heavenly places above all authority, all power, all these things, he includes us in that, that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual reality that we can live in. It's pretty wild. Seated above everything in the world? Is that our reality day to day? So to summarize, Paul's praying for them to be filled with wisdom, have supernatural knowledge of God, be able to see spiritually the eternal hope they have in the kingdom, the spiritual riches in Jesus and the power of God that's extended to them, and to be seated with Jesus above all power in the world. It's quite a prayer. It'd be nice to pray for each other like this. But beyond being just a nice prayer, these are spiritual realities for all believers that we can live in, that we can walk in. And they should be real to us. Is this what our lives look like? The things Paul's describing here, do they look like this? If we were to ask ourselves, what does the life of a Christian look like? What is it marked by? What would be the things that come to mind? I think for a lot of us, we immediately jump to the things that we're supposed to do. And maybe some of the things we're not supposed to do. 
Like we're supposed to do a lot of things, right? We're supposed to be people who give, people who serve, who help people, who witness, who teach, who read our Bibles. We're also supposed to avoid a lot of things. We're not supposed to lie or steal or cheat or engage in sexual immorality. There's a lot of things we're supposed to do and a lot of things we're supposed to not do. And maybe we feel like, you know, if I do the things I'm supposed to do well and I don't do the things I'm not supposed to do, then I'm a good Christian. That's what a Christian's life looks like. And it's true that we should look like that. But how much good do we have to do and how much bad do we have to avoid to be considered a good Christian, to live the Christian life? I mean, nobody's perfect, right? Well, Jesus made a statement about what a believer's life should look like in Matthew chapter 5. And I've, I've heard this statement debated quite often. But you find it in Matthew 5, 48. And he said this, You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. End quote. That's a pretty tough statement, right? Anybody feel like they live up to that? Are we perfect like God? Is that really what Jesus expects of us? I mean, how can we live like that? Like maybe he's exaggerating. Maybe he's, this is like hyperbole. And I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I think he's just holding up this standard that he wants us to try for, but he knows we're not going to really reach it, right? We'll fall short, but as long as we're doing our best, then Jesus is happy with us. Maybe you've heard something like that or thought something like that. It's kind of this just do your best idea in Christianity. The problem is that's not really what he said, is it? And the reality is the do-your-best idea is not one you're going to find in your Bible. It's just not really there. It's a cultural idea, and it's not, like, a bad idea, right? Like, you know, you grow up playing soccer, and they're like, do your best, right? And it's, it's good, like, you, you know, I don't, don't want to crush yourself playing soccer as a five-year-old, but it's just not in the Bible, and we've got to be very careful that we don't take ideas from our culture and our experience and add them to the Bible when they're not there. And this isn't there. And Jesus never says it. He doesn't say, do your best. And he doesn't make allowances for people falling short either. In fact, he said things like this, be perfect. Or to the woman caught in adultery, he said, go and sin no more. He didn't say, go and try harder. Do your best not to sin anymore. He said, go and sin no more. Those are the kinds of things that he said. And I think we tend to put mystery into this verse that isn't really there because it's difficult. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we scratch our heads at that because we don't live up to it. But it's not really very ambiguous. And if we read the context, it becomes even more clear. And it's always important when we're approaching the Bible that we get the context of what we're reading. It's so easy to just grab a verse and say, that sounds nice and quote it, but the Bible wasn't really meant to be used that way. It was written as books, and those books are whole books. You're meant to read them as a whole book, not just take a sentence out of it, and then say, well, what does this sentence mean? I don't know. Let's, let's talk about it. And in fact, this verse has a connecting word at the beginning. It says, you therefore, and that therefore means that it's connecting to what came before. It's capping off something Jesus has been saying. And so it's begging us to read the context. So let's do that. Let's be good students of the Bible. Let's look at the context here. What has Jesus been saying? And we find this verse comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which if you've been in church, you've probably heard before. It's the most you know, famous sermon 
ever. Um, and Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of chapter 5 of Matthew, and he starts with the Beatitudes, which is like the blessed statements. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then he moves into some very famous statements. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You've maybe heard those preached on if you've been in church much. And then he moves into this very long section, which is what this caps off. And this section we find starts in verse 17, and he starts off by saying this in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, it's a pretty tough statement. Now, you understand, Jesus, at this point in his ministry, he's starting to get some clout. He's starting to get recognized. People have heard about him. They've come to listen to him. And his ministry is marked by opposition from a certain group, the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the religious leaders. They're always butting heads with Jesus. He's rebuking them. They're opposing him. And these are the guys who are really serious about the law. They're always holding up the law of Moses. I mean, look how good we are following the law. You've got to follow the law. Follow the law. The law is everything. That's what they're all about. And Jesus, who's rebuking these people, is known as the friend of sinners, the people who don't follow the law. And so it would be possible for somebody who's kind of surface level following what Jesus is doing to think, oh, he doesn't really care about the law, does he? Like, it's okay. he's okay with it if we don't really follow the law. But Jesus very strongly refused that. You hear that idea these days still, by the way. You hear people say, oh, Jesus doesn't really care if I follow the laws. He just loves me. Jesus refutes that idea pretty strongly. Not one iota will pass away. That's like the dot on an I. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Those legalistic religious leaders. And then he goes on to illustrate that. And for the next big chunk of the chapter, what he does is he takes a law and he holds it up. And then he says how you must go further than the law if you want to really be right with God. So it looks like this. He says, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. And then you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, any man who looks lustfully at a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You've heard that it was said that a man who would divorce his wife must follow all these procedures. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife for any reason other than sexual immorality makes an adulterer out of her. And God hates divorce, by the way. You find that in Malachi, and they should have known that. You've heard it said that you must not break your oaths, but keep the things that you swear to. But I tell you, don't take oaths, let your yes be yes and your no be no. What that means is you should live as if every word out of your mouth was said with your hand on a Bible in a courtroom. With that much weight. You shouldn't even need to take an oath. Because you treat everything that seriously. 
You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, if a man strikes you on the cheek, turn to him the other cheek also. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Now, I've been paraphrasing this, but you can go read the whole chapter if you'd like. It's pretty powerful. And then he caps this whole thing off with this verse. You, therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that's the context here. It's not enough to just follow the letter of the law. Just do the right things. Don't do the wrong things. He goes further. Our hearts have to be right. And the standard that he holds up is perfection. Now, maybe a lot of us would say, you know, we keep the law, at least mostly. Like, we don't murder or commit adultery or violate, you know, our sacred oaths. We love our neighbors. Maybe we can say that. Maybe we don't even live up to that. But when we're faced with this, none of us can honestly say that we live up to it. We're not perfect. We all have to admit that we don't meet this standard Jesus holds up. It can almost feel like This is unfair to expect this of me, but he said it. So what do we do with it? And this is what it means to live a Christian life. Do we? And I think every one of us, when we face this incredible standard that Jesus holds up, we have to face two facts. First, he's right. Because we hear this. And we read this, and everything in us is like, that is good. Oh, it's beautiful, isn't it? Like, to not even be angry with my brother, to not even have lustful thoughts. There's rightness in this. And I have to admit, somebody who lived that way would be more righteous than me. And the second fact we have to face is that that is not me. I don't live up to that. And so our own consciences condemn us as we recognize the rightness in what he says and the wrongness in ourselves as we don't measure up to it. And if this is the standard, then we're doomed. Because how could a holy and righteous God who really is all of these things except me, who is so, so far from it? And that's where the gospel comes in that we could not do this, we could not live this life. We were hopelessly lost and hopelessly wicked compared to God and his standards. But Jesus came and he died for us while we were sinners, taking our wickedness on himself and giving us his righteousness. He lived this life that he's describing. He lived it. He was perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. And now when we come to him and we respond in faith because of what he's done on the cross, his righteousness is counted as our righteousness. It's on us. He covers us with it. And the reality is we have been saved by grace. Given to us freely when we didn't deserve it. As Paul talks about it, we're going to see this concept unpacked a lot in Ephesians as we continue to go through the book. But Jesus has done something by grace to save us when we respond in faith. And this is what we see Paul talking about in our passage in Ephesians. The working of his great might that he worked in Christ Jesus 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And then in chapter 2, we see that we are raised with him and we are seated with him. Not because we deserve to be seated with him, but because of his grace. Jesus did the work. It's all in him. And now we respond to him in faith. His righteousness becomes our righteousness, and that is the mark of a Christian life. It's a life that has been crucified with Jesus and buried with him so that we can be raised with him and seated with him. And we can say like Paul does in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And this life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in Jesus who loved me and gave himself for me. And everything we do as believers should spring out of that spiritual reality. When Paul's talking about these realities for believers, they should be real to us. And this is the big picture of what has happened to us if we're in Christ, of the gospel in action. That we have been seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms, above every name, above every power. Not because of anything that we have done, because of what he did. And because of this, this drives everything we do, and we actually can live out what he said now. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How can I do that? That's not me, but it is him. And I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live. He lives in me. And he can live this out. Do you see it? And this is a spiritual reality. He's taken our place. We've been crucified with him. We've been raised with him. We are seated with him in the heavenly realms, and now he lives in us. And that should seriously affect our life and what it looks like. You know, we're so used to having to prove ourselves, to having to earn our seat. Like if you want to get into a good college, what do you have to do? You've got to study and work hard and get a good GPA and have like good extracurricular activities and a great resume. You know, now we're here at Sam Houston, the Harvard of the South. <laughs> good job. Or say you want to advance in a company. Maybe you want to make it to the top and get a seat on the executive board. How do you get that seat? You work and you work and you work and you claw and you scratch and you network and you do all these things and you just work so hard to be recognized and to prove yourself so that you'll get advanced up the company to this seat so that you'll have made it. And we love the underdog story of someone who's worked so hard to earn something that no one thought they could get because they inspire us. So that people are like really excited about this quarterback in the NFL, Brock Purdy, plays for the 49ers. He was the last pick in the draft, the last pick. They always call it Mr. Irrelevant. But now he's a starting quarterback because of an injury, and he's gone undefeated. He hasn't lost a game, and they're in the NFC Championship. And everyone loves that story because this is the guy no one picked. He was the last pick. No one expected anything from him. But he's worked hard, and here he is, and he's a success. But that's not how the Christian life works. It's not something that we work for. We're not just underdogs. 
It's not like being the last pick in the draft. Like He's still an athlete. He still has a lot of things going for him, a lot of skill and ability to be where he's at. This would be more like a paraplegic trying to make it in the NFL. It's like, I just don't have what it, like, it's not possible. I don't have the capability at all. We don't work for our seat with Jesus. We don't earn it. There's no way we could. We start with it. We're seated with him in the heavenly realms. That's a spiritual reality when we come to Jesus. We didn't earn it. We can't gain it. You can't earn God's favor. It's grace. Does that mean there's not work for us to do, that there's not things to do for Jesus? No. But our work comes from our place with Jesus, not for our place with Jesus. And that makes a lot of difference. We're not working for the approval of a boss who we want to gain something from. We're working to please the one who's already given us everything. And the reality is it's not even really us doing the work in ourselves. He lives in me. He does the work in me. He does what I never could. And if we're not careful, we can apply a worldly perspective to our walk with Jesus. And I've got to work before I can sit. But in the kingdom of God, you sit first. And the work flows out of that. We're seated with him in the heavenly realms. And that should be how we live. As we've said, this is the big picture of a Christian's life. What it should look like. But it should also be a picture of every day in a Christian's life. Is this what our day-to-day life looks like? So on any given day, I can operate in one of two ways. Either in my own flesh, by my own power, doing my best, which is never, ever enough. Always falling short of what Jesus calls us to. Or being crucified with Christ today and letting him live in me today and work through me as Paul described. It makes a lot of difference. How do I determine what my day is going to look like? How do I determine how I'm going to live today? It's the same as the starting place for a Christian's life. My starting place in my life as a Christian is being seated with Christ. And the starting place of a day with Jesus should be the same, being seated with Christ. Are we getting the sequence right? We sit with Jesus first. That's the starting place. And that should be what my day looks like. When I wake up, what's the first thing I do? Is it do first or is it sit first? Am I immediately thinking of all the things I've got to do today? Like, I got to go to class, I got to do all these assignments, I got to do my work, I got to do this and that, I got to do these things for Jesus too. And then operate in my flesh and my own capabilities. Or do I wake up and put those things aside? and sit with Jesus, and meet with him, and invite him into my life and into my day, and let him live in me. You know, it's even possible to busy ourselves with things for Jesus, but never actually spend any time with him, or experience any closeness with him. You can get so caught up in building a great small group lesson, or serving my small group leader, or even reading my Bible, 
but never actually spend time with God. Doing things for Him as if that is going to please Him. When He's already told me what the standard is, what it would take to do enough to please Him. And I know I'm not going to meet it. And what He really wants from me is to sit down and spend time with Him and be close to Him. We are seated with Him in the heavenly realms. He wants us to walk with Him, to be with Him, to let Him live in us. But so often we get caught up in doing and never actually sit with Jesus. And if I'm trying to please God by doing things for Him, it'd be like trying to please my wife by doing a bunch of chores, but never actually saying a word to her all day, or spending any time with her. And be like, thanks for doing the dishes, but I'd rather spend time with you. Because that's what a marriage is. It's a relationship. And if we never actually spend any time with God, what are we doing? He wants us to stop and sit with him. This is why we always talk about having a devotional life. And if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, you have to have one. It's not optional. And if you've been around us a while, you've heard us talk about this idea before. Have a devotional life. Spend time with Jesus. And we probably all recognize this is something that we should have. But how many of us really consistently, every single day, spend time with Jesus? We know we should, but for so many of us, we don't. And it can seem sometimes to be like, we'll talk about devotional lives, but we kind of almost expect that no one's going to really do it. Why is that? Is it possible that it's because our enemy knows how much we need it? That he knows that this is square one for a Christian to sit with Jesus. And he fights very hard to keep us from it. To keep us from spending time with him. To get us doing anything but that. We must fight for it. We have to have a devotional life. We have to spend time with Jesus every day. And if I get up in the morning and I spend time with Jesus first... I invite him into my life, then I'm giving him my day. And it looks very different if Jesus lives in me today versus just operating in myself. And when I walk about my day, the Holy Spirit is in me and he's speaking to me and he's guiding me. And if I make a mistake, he convicts me and he corrects me. And I'm able to say, I'm sorry, Jesus, and I fall back on grace, but I learn and I grow because it's a process where he's sanctifying me and making me look more like Jesus. But that process short circuits if I don't spend time with him. If I don't invite him to speak in my life and move in my life every day, then I'm not going to grow any closer to him that day. And I'm not going to be any more like Jesus at the end of that day. I can't do it on my own. I need him. That's the whole Christian life. And if I'm not willing to give him my day, my morning, some time each day, then have I really even given him my life? And this is the only way that we can possibly live as Christ asks us to. Like we see in Matthew 5. By letting him live in us each day. Speaking to us, guiding us, convicting us, correcting us, growing us. And that only happens if we will sit with him. And spend time with him every day. We have to do this. We have to spend time with Jesus. This is the very basis of the Christian life. 
that we're seated with him in the heavenly realms, and it must be the basis of every day, sitting with Jesus every morning. And if I have a day as a Christian with no intimacy with Jesus, then I failed as a Christian that day. Nothing else I did matters. I could meet a bunch of people on campus and share the gospel with them. I could have a killer small group lesson. I could avoid the sins that most readily want to grab at me. None of it matters if I didn't have any closeness to Jesus. Because if that's all I did, then all I did, I did in my flesh. And I can't actually accomplish or build anything that way. None of it's going to matter. Square one is intimacy with Jesus. That's the starting point. It's essential. It's the foundation. I must be close to Jesus. Then I can really live crucified with Christ and he can live in me. We have to commit to this every day. So what does it look like practically to really live this out? To really sit with Jesus every day? To really have intimacy with him every day? Invite him into every day of my life? When we look at this, there's really two essential components that must be in every single day of a believer's life to really have intimacy with Jesus. We have to at least have these two things every day. The first one, sitting with Jesus, means talking to him, connecting with him, spending time with him. Prayer. I have to talk to Jesus every day, spend time with him every day. Have a relationship with him. Communicate with him. Listen to him. And when we pray, we bring him in. Anything I do without prayer is done in my own power. You guys understand that? Like anything that I approach and I tackle and do on my own without praying about it, I'm doing in my own abilities, which are rather limited. But anything that I do prayerfully brings Jesus into it and brings his power into it which is not limited. And when we pray, we partner with God. And his power is extended to us, like Paul said. This is why Samuel Chadwick said, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep us from praying, to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom but he trembles when we pray. We have to pray every single day. We've got to meet with Jesus and talk with him. The other thing that we must have every day is that we must saturate ourselves with the word of God. Fill ourselves with it. Spend time in scripture. Meditate on it. Reflect on it. Fill our hearts and our minds with his word. It's been divinely inspired for us and it reveals his thoughts and his character on every page. We must love the Word of God. We must spend time with it, in it. Have a fresh experience of it every day. It is living and it is active. And it's not boring, I promise. Engage with it. Spend time with it and God will meet with you. And He's not boring. We are. As our friend John Cashel loves to say. We need those two pieces. Those are essential. But it's important that we don't do those things like checking off a to-do list. Just kind of distractedly getting through them so I could say that I did, did my things today. All right, I said some prayers. I read some chapters in my Bible. Okay. Like, have you ever been with somebody who was just on their phone the whole time you were hanging out? They're just distracted. 
And it's like you can try to talk to them and they you know, don't even respond or maybe they kind of give you a half-hearted answer, but they're obviously not really listening. And it's like they're here with me, but they're not really here with me. You know what I mean? Let's not be like that with God. Distracted, not actually engaged with him. And we live in this culture that's just constantly going, and there's so many things vying for our attention, and so many of them are right in our pocket all the time. But we've got to put those things aside, put aside distractions, and really be present with Jesus. Psalms 46, it says, Be still and know that I am God. We need to take some time and sit and be still. Put your phone away. Put your distractions away. Don't think about all the things you've got to do or whatever it is that wants to take your focus and actually be present with God. Really spend time with Jesus. We pray. We read our Bibles. We can add a lot of things to this. Listen to worship. Meditate on it. Sing along. Read books from men and women who knew God really well. That's why we always talk about old dead guys. There's these people who actually knew God really well, spent a lot of time with him, and they saw a lot of things that were true in him, and they wrote about them. And I can read their books and learn more about God and know him better. We could journal, write things down. There's a lot of things we can do, but the point is we have to spend time with Jesus every day. And that's got to at least mean that I'm praying and I'm reading Scripture every day. And if we're going to do this, if we're going to spend time with Jesus, it has to be intentional. We have to plan for it. Like it's kind of this romantic idea to think about just, you know, spontaneity and spending time with somebody. But if I really want to spend time with you, I'm going to plan for it. Because this way I make sure it happens and I prioritize it. And if we really want to spend time with Jesus, we have to plan for it. Set a time. Put it in your calendar. Make it happen. Let's be people who really meet with Jesus every day. Worship team, you can go ahead and head back up as we move towards a close. And tonight, maybe you're here, and these spiritual realities that we've been talking about, being crucified with Christ, having him live in us, being seated with him in the heavenly realms, they're not things you've ever really known. Maybe you've even been trying to do some things to try to please him. But you see the standard he holds up, and it's crushing. And you know you can't do it. And if that's where you are, then let's, let's stop striving and try to live this do-your-best Christianity when our best is not ever enough and instead come and bow to him and give him our lives and let him do the work and let him live in us. Come give your life to him. Let his grace pour into his life. Let his righteousness cover you and let the spiritual reality be real for you. You be seated with him in the heavenly realms. And if that's you, what I'm going to want you to do is here in a minute, we're going to kind of break, and I want you to grab your small group leader. See how I, I want to know what it means to give my life to Jesus. I want to, I want to live this life. And they can walk you through that and pray with you. And for a lot of us, we've given our life to Jesus, but maybe we haven't given him our days. And we need to take some steps to really live this out daily so that we can really walk with him every day. And live out of the spiritual realities of what he's done in us. And not our own flesh anymore. And in a second here, the worship team is going to play for us. And as they do, what I want you to do is I want you to find somebody. Grab a friend. 
Maybe someone who's in your small group, maybe your small group leader or someone from your company. If you're here and you don't know anybody, that's great. Go make a friend. I'd love to talk with you. But find a partner. And let's talk with one another and let's be honest with each other. Do we have a devotional life every day? Do we spend time with Jesus every day? What's it going to take to really live that out? And let's lay out together an actual plan, an actual time where I can meet with Jesus. Maybe I need to wake up a little earlier, whatever I've got to do. But let's make a plan, let's put it in our calendars, and then we can hold one another to actually doing it. And let's live it out together. And once you've done that, you can pray with one another, and then you can join in worship. I'm going to pray. Worship team is going to play some music. And then let's go find somebody and let's live this out together. Lord, we love you, Jesus. God, we thank you that you gave yourself for us, Lord. That what we could not do on our own, you did for us, Jesus. And you have seated us with you in the heavenly realms, Jesus. A seat we can never earn or never deserve. God, would that be our reality every day, Jesus? God, we love you and we look to you. Would you help us to put you first in our lives every day and walk with you, Lord? I don't want to operate in my flesh anymore, Jesus. I want you to live in me every day, God. Would you help us, Jesus? Speak to us, guide us, help us to see the steps we need to take, to be honest with them, to lay them out and then to walk them out, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And grab a friend. Let's make a plan. Let's walk with Jesus.